Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi guys, Carly here. I want to tell you about my newest webinar coming up. It is on April 5th and it is called Identifying and Cultivating Your Author Brand. And there's a number of reasons why I find this topic so important. And one of the things that I stress in this webinar um, is that your brand, it's not this fabricated and complicated thing. Your author brand is just who you are and how you present yourself online. Recognizing these strengths, being strategic at times, but practicing behavior that plays into these strengths, this is what's key. Here's what I'm going to cover. What's the difference between an author brand and an author platform? Social media and author website best practices, 
what publishers will do for you versus what you have to do on your own, tips from successful authors, and where to focus your energy for where you are at in your career at this time. Author brand should not be a scary topic, should not be a scary word. It's really just part of being a content creator in the year 2022. And remember, authors are content creators because number one, you are writing a book, you're creating content. Number two, you're selling those books and largely going to promote them online. And number three, you're going to create essays and memes and campaigns, and all of this is going to be marketed online. So it's time to think about, if you haven't already, how to pivot to thinking about yourself as an author brand. So I really look forward to seeing you guys. You can find all the information, carlywaters.com slash webinars, or find me on Twitter at carlywaters. The webinar is going to be April 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It will be recorded. So if you want to catch it live, you can. And if not, you can also buy it ahead of time and get the recording sent to you. I hope to see you guys there. Then I have a course coming up on the 13th of April from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time called Leaning into Specificity. So you've heard us on the podcast talking about specificity, but what exactly does it mean? So in this two and a half hour webinar, I will take you through the theory of why specificity is so important to the process of elevating a story. I'll also show you examples and lead you through exercises so that you can immediately practically apply everything that you learned. If you want to sign up, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look for the courses tab, and you will find the areas there to sign up. Then finally, there's a giveaway happening that we think you would be interested in. If you live in Ontario or near to Ontario, or if you can travel to Ontario, there's a wonderful giveaway happening on Instagram by the account The Guillemot. So that's the and then G-U-I-L-L-E-M-O-T. It's a weekend stay from the 28th and the 29th of May. Uh, there are certain rules there that you need to follow to enter the competition, but it's a place that I've been to write and I can greatly, greatly recommend it. You can either go by yourself to get away from everyone or the uh, cabin. There's an extra cabin there as well at Sleep 6. So you can maybe take your five closest writing friends with you. So head to the Guillemot on Instagram to enter for that. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. I wanted to tell you about my latest webinar that's coming up on April 28th. It's called Writing Tension, and it's all about how to create tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. We'll cover things like types and sources of tension and conflict, how to effectively establish and escalate tension, conflict, and stakes, the most common mistakes and biggest challenges about these elements of storytelling. And of course, I'll share plenty of tips and tricks on how to know if you have enough tension, conflict, and stakes in your scenes. We'll also have time for a Q&A session. You can find all the information on this two-hour webinar on the link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter and on Bianca's website. And if you can't make it on April 28th, don't worry. The session will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours after the event. I hope you'll join me. I look forward to seeing you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. You will have remembered that quite a few months ago, we had Emmy Nordstrom Higdon from Westwood Creative Artists joining us as our guest agent. For those of you who submitted your query letters and opening pages to a guest agent, and Emmy looked at all of those queries so brilliantly that we asked Emmy to come back again and look at some of those guest submissions again. So Emmy, welcome back to the show. And I think I feel like we now 
I need to call you Dr. Nordstrom Higdon. Is oh that goodness. right? <laughs> that is technically correct. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank you. It was it's a big relief to be honest. It was hard to be in a school program during COVID. So I feel for anyone who's in a similar situation for sure. Yeah. So well, yeah. Welcome back, Dr. Nordstrom Higdon. Right. <laughs> Thank okay. You. So we're going to dive in as per usual. Emmy, do you want to take us away by reading the first query letter for us? Okay, so I'm going to start with, I believe it's Gerard Decker, and I'll just start by reading it right from the top. So it says, Dear Mrs. or Mr. Name, enter personal hook, which is a good format to begin with. Perfect Mira is a fast-paced 74,000-word thriller inspired by the Da Vinci Code of Dan Brown and the hero Jack Reacher in Lee Child's books. The difference is that the hero in my book is a young Korean woman called Mira. Mira discovers she was genetically enhanced at conception to be as perfect as possible. So are a hundred soldiers, fighting machines, controlled with brain implants. Together with her father and best friend, Mira confronts her creator and gets dragged into a dangerous adventure with a political twist. My background education as a scientist and my career as a leader in IT transformation services have given me the tools to write plausibly about technology and human interactions, culture, and emotions. Two years ago, I followed my wife to South Korea on her diplomatic career, allowing me to take a career break and focus on new things like learning Korean and educating myself on creative writing and human psychology. I'm looking forward to working with you as an agent to help me improve the book and find a suitable publisher to reach as many readers as possible worldwide. With kind regards, Gerard Decker. So that's the letter. And then, of course, there's the five-page sample that follows, which I'm sure we don't have time to read all of here. No, if you could just give us a bit of an overview of what's yeah. in those opening pages. Absolutely. So it's definitely a standard thriller. I say, like, it follows the genre convention. So it opens up with, you know, a, sort of a hooky scene about a couple of characters who are clearly in, like, a science setting there's a bit of a teaser, I would say, about something that is about to be revealed. So it doesn't give a whole lot of information away. And then we also, in a second segment, meet the main character who's mentioned in the letter, Mira. We sort of see her morning routine and we get an impression that her life is pretty much picture perfect at the beginning of the book. And obviously from the letter, that's about to be disrupted. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so what was your feedback to the writer? Firstly, let's tackle the query letter. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I think the letter itself is in okay shape. Like the formatting is pretty good. It's nice and brief, which I always super appreciate in a query letter. It gets the basic message across and it contains all the kind of important metadata, like the word count and things like that. So that's super helpful. A couple of things that I mentioned to the author in my notes to them was that in terms of the comps, I felt like they were a little bit vague and a little bit far reaching. Like we see a lot of comps, obviously, for authors like Dan Brown or Lee Child and while they give like a really good impression of the genre you're trying to hit, because they're like such huge bestsellers, you don't want to oversell your own work. And also you want to give the reader an idea of what it is that's similar about them. You know, like there's lots of aspects to even sort of the most market well-known titles. And so am I getting in here? Because I mean, the author does mention the hero character in Dan Brown's books, but I want to know if the writing style is going to be similar or if it's the pacing that I'm going to like, that kind of thing. And so you could be like a little bit more specific in there. And then there's a couple of things in there grammar wise. I always tell people to be really careful about grammar and query letters. And that's not to say that like, you know, that's going to be a deal breaker, I think, for anyone. Obviously, like typos and stuff are to be expected, but as much as possible to avoid things like sentence fragments and stuff like that. I think that the letter needs to tell us more about the book itself, though. So it sort of tells us the selling points, but it doesn't tell us much about what's going to happen in the actual story. So I wanted more about the plot, about the characters, you know, saying that someone gets dragged into a dangerous 
adventure with a political twist, like that's great as a starting point, but what kind of adventure? Are we talking like dragons or car chases? <laughs> you know, so it's a good, really, I think it's a really good starting point. But I also think that we're not getting a lot of meat in here. So the length is good. The format is good. But I would like more substance. And the biggest issue that I have with this one is that even though it's obviously framed as a selling point, I'm not sure why there's so much emphasis on the main character being a Korean woman. And I also don't understand what the author's kind of approach or qualifications are to be writing sort of a diverse character in a point of view position in the book. It seems like the author is not a Korean woman themselves. And so to me, it would take a lot of sensitivity consultation to nail that. And I also feel like it feels a little bit tokenistic when we're sort of told that the selling point, like the main difference in the book that's going to make it stand out from other books in the genre is one single diverse character who doesn't share any identity markers with the author. So I would say that it, you have to be really, really careful with that because obviously tokenism is not something that is ideal with any book. And especially in publishing, we want to be really careful about the way that, you know, diverse identities are really represented. So maybe it is a central feature, like a plot feature in the book. Maybe it is really important and there has been lots of consultation done. But from what I'm told in the letter, I don't get that impression. And so I'd like to know more about that. Um, and otherwise, you know, like if we're just creating diverse characters for the sake of creating them, like that's not always, especially as a, as an author who doesn't share that position, it's not always super beneficial to the story. So if the author has had sensitivity readers, etc., yeah. this is something you want to know in the query letter or not necessarily? Yeah, it would be great, especially if you're sort of, I mean, I'm white myself. So if I was writing a story, say, with a BIPOC main character and I was positioning my book as like, this is what's unique and special about this book, I would definitely want to also know like, okay, these are the things I've done to make sure that this unique, important aspect of my book is done really well, because otherwise it's going to be a huge detriment to the book. I've been reading a lot of contracts lately that have sort of like reputation clauses in them. And I think that they're getting stricter over time. And a lot of that, at least from my perspective in the industry, is probably because of the backlash people get on social media for doing a lot of these sorts of things poorly. And you definitely don't want to find yourself in that position. So what is a reputation clause? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, they take all kinds of different forms, but the one that I've been seeing most commonly lately is sort of, it'll be a clause in the contract that basically says that if the author, you know, has some behavior or some sort of public demonstration of their character that would contradict the way that they've positioned themselves you know, in their profile when they're on submission, and that that causes sort of like a widespread criticism of them or that it materially damages the potential sales of the book, then that can actually be caused to terminate the contract. So it's a pretty serious thing. And they used to be, I think, less common, or at least, you know, if they existed, I think that they had less material repercussions in the past because, you know, it's difficult in an age before Twitter and Instagram to really do something like publicly that's going to materially damage the sales of your book. But now that so many authors are also public figures and that that's so hard to avoid, I think that that happens all the time. You know, people will say something. It's definitely happened to me personally on Twitter where I've said something without thinking too hard about it. And it's come back to be pretty widely criticized by other people, oftentimes people I don't know or who I know pretty peripherally. And so it can be a really challenging position to find yourself in as an author when that's threatening, you know, your publishing options, especially if you're early in your career. Yeah, that's something to, to keep in mind. Mind. Well, thanks for mm -hmm, that. In really. terms of the opening pages, what was your feedback? Yeah, there? I gave a little bit of feedback mostly around. So 
something just to think about, although I never think that people should change their whole book, obviously, but sometimes a non-American setting is challenging for some American readers. So just to keep that in mind when you're writing and to find, I think it's helpful if you can sort of find little ways. This book is set in Paris. So if you can find ways to make the setting appealing and interesting to an American reader, knowing that a lot of editors that you're going to be submitting this to are going to be American, at least in the North American you know, publishing market. I always give notes on the first page and I did that in all of the queries that I looked at for today. So I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later on. I talked a little bit about sentence structure, which I think that sometimes, you know, I feel like it's so subjective, but I feel like especially in the opening pages or a sample, you want to really show off your writing abilities. So you want to show what techniques you know. And I found in some sections of this sample, the sentence structure was getting a little bit repetitive. So I suggested to the author that they make sure to vary sort of the length and complexity of the sentences that they're using. Even if, you know, it's sort of typical to the genre to have a more formulaic style, I think that it can be helpful just to show the agent the breadth of your skills. And also, you know, when this goes to an editor, you want to really captivate them with what you're able to do in the first few pages. So I think that that can be really helpful. Oh, the book is also dual POV, and that wasn't mentioned in the query letter. So I did suggest to the author that they mention that because I think that especially agents who have sort of a hands-on approach, we all have our tastes in and also skill sets in like what we like working on, what we're good at working on. And so that can be really helpful information to know up front. And then also just to keep an eye on the grammar, I think that having someone just like an outside eye read it over, even just those five pages can be so helpful because there are so many like small grammar things that once they add up, if by the end of your sample, an agent feels like there's a lot going on there that needs to be worked on, I think it gets complicated in terms of picturing how much work you have ahead of you to get this project ready for submission. So that was some of the general feedback I gave in the sample. And Grammarly is very helpful for that, you know. Oh, yeah, Um, it's true. I never think think of recommending that, but that's so smart. You can like upload 50 pages of your manuscript at a time, I think. And I mean, again, you don't have to subscribe to that forever. Like you can subscribe for one month and get all of your pages through it in one month. And it's not always 100% correct. There's times, you know, that I get Mm -hmm. frustrated with Grammarly because it's wrong. But, you know, it's a good way to catch those kinds of errors. Can we go to our second query letter? Yeah, definitely. So the second one that I have here is from... There is no name here, so I'll just start reading it. Make sure you do include your name, obviously, in the real query, but I understand why some people don't when they're sending them to the podcast. So this one's addressed to you, Bianca, Carly, and Cece, which is totally fine. Obviously, we would want to customize that going forward. It says that the podcast has become one of their favorites. Thank you for being so thorough and transparent. The author loves it when Cece gets super jazzed about a particularly juicy query in pages. Thank you for taking the time to read and critique my query in first pages of, and they've redacted the title, which is also totally fine for this setting. Clearly, you want to include the title when you're sending it out for real. And it says, an adult sci-fi fantasy complete at 110k words that will appeal to readers of Red Rising and fans of the Resident Evil franchise. Tech-savvy genetic subject Kenan is burdened with failures to find a cure for a mutated blood virus killing his twin sister Kira. As children, geneticists upgraded their DNA, resulting in an immunity to the virus. When a vessel crashes near the haven they call home, Kenan discovers a girl with clean blood that's been extinct since the Sky City's abandoned ground level, blood that could save his sister. 
Before Kenning can persuade the girl to help Kira, an encrypted message is discovered. The diabolical mad scientist governing San Francisco, Castro Morales, plans to take over the Sky Cities with an illicit army he's creating. However, Kenning possesses an enigmatic detail he requires, and Morales plans to obliterate the Haven and Kira to get it from Kenning. To keep his sister safe, Kenning leaves the Haven with a small team. Their only hope is Kenning's estranged brother in the wasteland of San Francisco. However, getting there is more treacherous than any experimental explosion in Kenan's arsenal. Kenan will risk everything to protect the only family he has left. Again, thank you for your feedback. When not writing, I can be found tackling, read, failing to tackle, her TBR shelves, yes, plural, binging the latest book-to-TV adaptation, or embarrassing her son with her endless supply of mom jokes and 90s pop culture references. So it's a good letter, again, in terms of the length and all of that kind of stuff. The bio, I would change into first person. Even as I'm reading it out loud, I'm like tripping over (laughs) the pronouns, but I think that's just a stylistic thing. Definitely write your letter as though it's you. You know what I mean? We want it to feel nice and personal. And I also said, we sort of need more in your bio. Like I love the little personal details, but I also want to know kind of what you do day to day and if you have any writing credentials or any like things you're proud of in your writing career so far. If not, that's totally fine. But I do still... I like to know kind of when I'm looking at an author, like, is this your, you know, career right now? Or are you in a different career? I have a few clients who do things like very relevant to their writing, like they're technical writers day to day or they're journalists day to day or what have you. Or is it sort of like a second job that you're taking on or a passion project, that kind of thing? And it's not because I make decisions based on that. It's just interesting to know, you know what I mean? And also, I tend to work as an agent. I don't really work nine to five because a lot of my clients do have other jobs that they work during the day, but some agents do have a nine to five schedule. So it can be helpful to know like if your schedules are going to be compatible and things like that too. It sounds from the bio here that maybe the author is a stay-at-home mom, and so that might be what she's getting at, sort of talking about her child. But if not, it can be great to know, like, do you have outside skills and expertise, too, that your potential agent could be aware of? So so yeah, a little bit more meat in the bio would be great. I hope that all writers are avid readers, but that's pretty nonspecific in this particular case. Other than that, though, jumping back to the beginning, so the first paragraph is great. I like the personalization. It's very cute. And it has most of the important information there. So I would say definitely you want to be more specific about your genre than just saying sci-fi fantasy. It doesn't really tell me anything to tell me it's a sci-fi fantasy book because, you know, we all know that like the range from Star Trek to Lord of the Rings and like down to contemporary writers like Martha Wells, for example, there's a huge breadth in there. So I want to know more specifically, like if you're a sci-fi fantasy writer, what genre are you? And also what niche does your book fit into? And hopefully if you're writing in that genre, you've read enough to be able to answer that question. If not, just get as specific as you possibly can, you know, tell us, especially in your comps, like a little bit more. So this author said that their book will appeal to readers of Red Rising and the fans of Resident Evil, but those are both huge, you know, huge franchises. And so I would say you need to be more specific about like what will appeal, what about your work will appeal to those people. And maybe even get a little more specific in terms of you can offer an additional comp or maybe something that's like a little more like something that would sit on the shelf with your book. So Red Rising is maybe an example of that. But if you can find something that's like even closer, that would be great. Otherwise, the formatting here is a little bit chunky. So I had suggested there are three paragraphs of plot in the middle, and I think they could be a little more efficient. So I was sort of saying to the author, definitely bring those into one cohesive paragraph and try and clarify it as much as possible, because there's a lot going on in there. Okay. 
Great. All right. So what was in those opening pages? The opening pages were actually great. And the only real criticism I had. So she opens essentially with a scene where we see the two main characters, the twins that are mentioned in the query letter, basically waiting on a scientific process with a friend of theirs that is going to tell them whether they found like a, not a cure maybe for the illness that the sister is facing, but something that's going to help her. And so I really enjoyed the writing. I thought it was great. I think that the sample actually fleshes out the characters in really interesting ways. We get to see kind of their relationships a little bit. The friend is charming. There's some good stuff in there. The only thing that I would say is that something that I am hearing all the time lately, and honestly, it breaks my heart a little bit, but from editors is that I get so many passes that stories are too quiet. And so I think that for this sample, the author really needs to restructure so that we get a scene at the beginning of the book that's less descriptive and more sort of plot focused. And I only say that because we don't get a ton of information about like what the main conflict is and we don't get any taste of this like adventure that they're about to go on at all. And so it's like a really nice slice of life, which I love reading, but I know that this isn't something necessarily that's going to propel a reader into, I must read the next 10 pages of this book, or I must read the next, you know, 100 pages of this book. And so I think that that's really super important in terms of the writing sample. And especially because the writing is so skillful, like it seems like the author is capable of that. I think it's just that things need to be shuffled around a little bit within the structure of the story. And just just on that, you know, oh, yeah. I've, I've noticed that as well, because it's, you know, we refer to it as stasis. It's like, what yeah. was their life like before this big thing happened that changed everything? And I feel exactly. like 10 years ago, we were seeing a lot more stasis in mm -hmm. those early chapters. And now editors just want you to get to the good stuff because it's like yeah. readers' attention spans have changed because of, you know, our access to social media and Absolutely. clicking through reels, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I've, I've very much noticed that myself as well. Sorry, carry on. Amy. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree with you. And it makes me want to cry because I love those sections. <laughs> like slice of life is something I love to read. And I honestly, actually Cece and I have talked about this a little bit because she is pretty convinced that it's like, it's going to come in waves and that the next thing we're going to see is that people really want to see those like quiet stories after kind of like the chaos that's happening in the world right now. Now, that people are going to really be gravitating towards those like slower, more, not necessarily introspective, but just like not necessarily life and death kind of stakes and heart pounding pacing. And if anything, like that's definitely where I see myself, but I don't think that the industry is moving in that direction. I really think that the industry is like, it's, it's more like TikTok, you know, fast. Definitely. I had a conversation with an editor recently who literally said to me that unless something explodes by page five, she's not really that interested. And I was like, that's pretty telling. And it's not at all where my head is at. So like, <laughs> yeah. it's helpful to have that feedback though. But And also, but having said that, you know, I have shared on social media that my latest this book has sold uh, The Witches of Moonshine Manor Yay! and that's coming out on the I 23rd of... I can't wait of... to read it. Yes. Thank you, Emmy, very much for I'm that. I'm so excited. Um, that's coming out on the 23rd of August and but what was encouraging, because I did write that book with a ticking clock in mind, up yes. the stakes, tons of things happened. And, you know, one editor turned it down 
because they said the book was too plot heavy and there was yes. too much tension. So maybe <laughs> that's that, what I want to hear. Maybe yeah. I need to contact that editor. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that bodes well for for the rest of the stories. You know what though? It is good to have these. I mean, who doesn't love like a heart pounding book? Also, that's the other thing is that I understand why editors feel this way. Even if the stakes are low, it is nice to have lots of plot points. Like it's it does give you a lot to work with, and I think it is a fun way to write. Also, so I think that people. You know, this book obviously has that in it. And so I think we just need to see that it's more of a structural issue than in this case, a content issue. And then I will also say that so we talked a little bit about part of the reason why I chose the the three queries that I did this one and then the next two for this episode was to talk about the length because this one comes in the author says at 110,000 words and then the next two that I chose one is 105,000 one is 116,000 and as you may know <laughs> just from knowing me personally I don't read queries that are over 100,000 words <laughs> so I wanted to explain a little bit about why that is because it's not that I hate long books, I promise. <laughs> but there is actually an economic consideration on the side of editors. And so I hope that authors can understand sort of the math behind it. But as a debut author, so if you're looking at a 100,000 word book, that's 400 pages approximately, but it's around 400 pages printed into a bound hardcover edition. So if you're looking at a you know, a trade publisher that wants to do a hardcover release and then a paperback release of your book, which is like, I think every author's like dream situation to be in, right? Because your royalties are higher on a hardcover book and they also get more publicity money because they're a higher cover price. So typically they're marketed more aggressively, which is great. But because it costs so much money to produce a hardcover book, the cover price is relative to the length of the book in a lot of ways, because you're paying for high quality paper and products to be able to make a hardcover copy of a book. And especially, I mean... I could go on for years. I love supply chain. I love talking about production and supply chain. But let's just say for now that there are huge paper shortages and supply is very, very difficult. So for hardcover books, especially the cost is a huge question. So most publishers, a 400 page hardcover book, usually in American dollars is about $35, which in Canadian, for those of us who are on this side of the border is almost $40 Canadian. In So it's a huge cost investment for a reader, you know, and a lot of readers do. I mean, who doesn't when they're like out shopping in the real world, balance the cost of what they're buying with what they think they're going to get out of it. So the sales are going to inevitably be lower with a book that's priced that high. And for a debut author, that's a massive risk to take, you know, your publisher knows that. And so if you're writing a book that's over 100,000 words, you've already disadvantaged yourself in terms of submissions. And that's not only to agents, but it's also to editors. It's possible that, you know, you'll sell a book at 90,000 words and maybe as you work with your editor, it'll get longer and that, you know, that happens. And I think editors weigh the benefits of those decisions as they're working with authors. But when you're sending it out on submission, you don't want to start from a place where you're already disadvantaged with your editor in terms of like, they're going to take this to an acquisitions board and their marketing is going to go, well, like we can't sell this because it's going to be too expensive. So especially in this like pandemic times where publicity and marketing teams are really kind of struggling to learn how to navigate this new sort of non brick and mortar climate that we're in. It's a huge thing to keep in mind. And it's not just a taste issue. It's actually like an economic 
problem that can really, really disadvantage your book. So that's part of why I chose all three of these, because I think the concepts are great, but you really have to make sure that you cut and that you keep your books as efficient as possible. And I think that that shows real skill as an author, too, to be able to sort of say, like, you know, I've kept this compact and efficient and readers will love it. And it does help with the pacing sometimes, too, to kind of like trim out some of that excess. So... Excellent advice That's there. my rant. <laughs> love it, love it. Okay, next query letter. Will you read that for us? Absolutely. So let's go with Jessica, who has written, Dear Bianca, Carly, Cece, and guest agent, I recently discovered your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Your advice has been inspirational and invaluable. You've all become a great encouragement to my writing career, and I'm eager for your feedback, which is so lovely. And again, like that would be customized to the agent that you're mailing it to. So it sounds like you're on the right track there. Sister of the Wolf is 116,000 word adult fantasy novel told from multiple viewpoints. A feminist retelling of Heart of Darkness imbued with Celtic folklore, it will appeal to audiences who enjoyed Catherine Arden's Winter Night Trilogy and Lucy Holland's Sister Song. Sister of the Wolf is a standalone novel with series potential. I don't know if this is meant to be Lyra or Lyra, but I'm going to go with Lyra, is heir to a cursed kingdom, and she's already failed her quest to save it. Across the sea, Lyra found magic that could break the curse. Before she could take it, she was attacked. As Lyra fled, she was forced to leave behind her prize and lover, Callan. Now Lyra's ready to return, and this time she'll bring a weapon, a Kelpie able to control the sea and raise cities. Lyra steals the creature from her allies, an act that could spark war. She doesn't care. She'll do whatever it takes to save her kingdom and rescue Callan. And I'm just going to say that that's where I would stop with this summary, but I'm going to keep reading. So, meanwhile, Aaron is devastated to learn that her beloved brother, Callan, is stranded across the sea. Aaron is an outcast and has no way to help until she learns that someone must take Callan's place on the return voyage. Aaron volunteers, but aboard the ship, the power dynamic begins to shift. Aaron earns the crew's respect by contending with the dangerous Kelpie and Lyra's authoritarian leadership. Lyra senses her subject's waning loyalty and wields a magical hold over them, but the effort begins to erode her sanity. From the hold, the Kelpie plots to turn the women against each other. As Lyra's paranoia grows, so does her penchant for violence. Aaron realizes the ship will never reach its destination until she intervenes, but is her enemy the monster in the hold or Lyra herself? Aaron must decide how far she'll go to rescue her brother and whether she's willing to become the kingdom's savior or its traitor. When not plotting fictional sea voyages, I'm an Air Force reservist, teacher, and keeper of two bad dogs. In each vocation, I enjoy examining leadership from a feminist perspective. I've earned a bachelor's degree in creative writing and a master's degree in literature. I live in northern Italy. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jessica. And then she's included some content notes, too, which are really, really helpful. And I will say that if this book ever gets below 100,000 words, this is a query that I would love to see in my inbox because it hits so many. I don't know if the authors read my manuscript wish list, but it seems like such a fun book. I'm really, really excited about it. So I think that the author is really on a good path. Can um, we talk about where you want them to cut it off? Because that takes yeah. out a whole other like character and a other perspective. So, so give us your, your reasoning there. Yeah, it does. And I wouldn't necessarily keep it exactly the way it is if I were to cut it there. I think I would want to like add a couple of sentences maybe to hint at the other things going on in the book. But even in a multi-POV book, I always encourage my authors to think about, you know, for a lot of readers, there is going to be one central character in the book, even if, you know, they have multiple points of view being written. And there's going to be like a central conflict. And so for me, the central conflict in this story so far, like, obviously, I haven't read the whole book. So this is take it with a grain of salt. But it sounds like, you know, this situation where Lyra is in a position of power, she's kidnapped, essentially, this Kelpie, and she's, you know, forced to leave behind her lover to try and rescue her kingdom. Like, that sounds to me like the A-plot. And so... 
everything else seems to stem from there. And while I might put in a couple of sentences to sort of hint at, especially this like mental health sanity situation, the paranoia thing, and also the fact that, you know, her lover's siblings on the boat, I think I would stick those in the first paragraph to kind of give a hint at the other plots. But in a query letter, I think the most important thing is that we get like a good sense of like what the main conflict is and who the characters are that we're really going to care about. And going into too much detail, we're just going to get lost. Okay, there's like a lot of plot going on here. So I think that, yeah, for me, I would like one really precise, compact paragraph about the A plot. And then, you know, generally speaking, the sample would flow from there. And as you read the book, you know, as you get further into the book, you're going to discover the rest. And that's sort of part of the magic. You could also, if you wanted to hint at the themes. So if you find that your plot description isn't really getting across everything you want to, you could also say something like themes to be explored will be, you know, sibling bonds or whatever. Obviously, I haven't thought this through. <laughs> I need a little more coffee before crafting the paragraph on my own. But yeah, I think that that could be made a lot more efficient. And that was pretty much the only feedback I gave to this letter, aside from pointing out that 116 words is over my magic number limit. <laughs> okay. And what was in those opening pages? Yeah, so the opening pages were good. Definitely, I feel like from reading this sample, I can understand why the book is so long. So the first thing that I sort of said is that there's a lot of description. So it's really well-written description. It's very evocative and very visual, but definitely this one needs to start more in the action because we don't get a whole lot of plot. Really all we find out in the first five pages that the we're, we're sort of opening with the sibling of the brother that's mentioned in the query letter and she finds out that her brother is in trouble and that's really all that we get. So I think that we really, like the description is beautiful, but but in order to really draw in a reader or an editor and get them excited about this book, definitely it needs to be sort of moved around a little bit. And there's definitely lots of, I always talk about like hardworking phrases and some phrases don't really contribute anything to the plot propulsion. And I think that there are a lot of those in here that can not necessarily be cut out forever, but that could come later, if that makes sense. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Last one. Yeah. So this one is from Claire. It says, Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I'm completely hooked on the shit that no one tells you about writing. Thank you for providing such helpful advice for writers. I know you don't typically represent work in my genre, but I would love to hear your feedback on my query in five pages. Told in alternating first-person points of view, The Book of Sorrow is a queer YA fantasy that should appeal to people who like the mythology in Lainey Taylor's Strange the Dreamer and the whimsical voice of the narrator in Mackenzie Lee's The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. There's, again, here three paragraphs about the book, so I think that almost everybody needs to just, like simplify a little bit in terms of the content of the book, but I'm going to read you what's written. It says, On her deathbed, Onyx's mother begged him to find the long-lost Book of Sorrow, the first book ever written in the land of fable, believed to tell the true story of fable's origin. Onyx's mother loved the books of fable, convinced they contained secrets that could heal the rift that splits their land, but Onyx always hated the books. After all, their secrets weren't enough to save his mother's life. So Onyx's been ignoring her words ever since she died, but when the rift starts spewing ominous smoke, Onyx's childhood and Enemy Asari finds the first part of the Book of Sorrow, Onik begins to think he's miscalculated. Studying the books of fable is all Asari has ever wanted, so when she's offered the chance to apprentice at the bookhouse in the town where she grew up, she seizes it. Yes, it means confronting Onik and the others who drove her from home in the first place, but the books are all Asari has to live for, until she stumbles onto the first part of the book that started everything, and that night the rift begins to stir. 
When Anik and Asari realize that the same book is entwined in both their lives, they're forced to put aside their past and follow Anik's mother's plea. They must search for the scattered pieces of the book that could be their only chance at quieting the rift and find them before the leader of Fable, who intends to destroy the book and wake up the rift fully. But the more pieces Anik and Asari find, the more muddled Fable's origin story becomes, until they no longer know whether they should be trying to finish the book or destroy it. All is not as it seems in Fable, and the book they seek may be the downfall of them all. I live in Astoria, New York, where I eat a lot of Greek food and attempt to make the perfect martini. I'm a senior associate editor in the composition and rhetoric department at W.W. Norton, and before that, I was an ESL teacher in a middle school. I'm an active member of SCBWI. Thanks very much for your consideration, Claire. So I think, yeah, other than the length here, it's a good letter. Well, and I love Greek food, so Claire, I'm on board. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you've acquired a taste for retzina, which most Greek people hate, the wine, I love that. Let's go for dinner. Carry on, Amy. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, no, I think that this is great. And I love, I think the bio is really strong. I think that the comps are good. Again, especially for YA, it's over the word limit. <laughs> it's over what you're targeting. The 105 words in YA could almost be a duology. So just be careful with that. But I would say if you can get it down to like nine. 90. That would be the sweet spot. And based on the writing sample, I think it's possible. I also think that, you know, I feel like these paragraphs really show, like the paragraphs in the query letter really show where editing could be beneficial. So like the sample, they're very, very well written and they're very detailed, but there's a lot in here that's sort of superfluous. So I think if you can edit your query letter down to one paragraph, I think that you'll be able to get your sample down as well and the rest of the book, because it's almost like you're giving me too much of the story in some ways. I think you can really distill it down to the important points. So it's not super, super overdone, but I definitely think that it's a little long and I don't need to know every single move that the character makes in the book from the query letter. I think we can be a little more sparing with that and let that come through in the writing. And then from the sample itself, the sample is actually pretty good. I like it in terms of it does have a lot in it in the sense that like we get a good sense of one of the main characters, at least this is a multi POV book. So that's always tricky with a sample, obviously. And the biggest thing that I would say about multiple POV is that no matter what you're including in your sample or not, make sure that your POV characters' sort of narrative voices are really, really easily distinguished. So that when somebody does pick up the full, you know, the idea is that with a multi POV book, you could pick it up and open it to any point in the book and you would know which narrator's head you're in. So you want them to stand out from each other as much as possible. Um, the biggest thing that I struggled with, like, in, so in this section, essentially, we meet the main character. It's almost his birthday. He's having all the feels from, you know, thinking about his mom passing away in this book and the things that he has and hasn't done since his mom died. He's also having feels about his best friends, which is like very YA appropriate. There's like some hints at a romantic plot line there, which is great. I think there's all kinds of good stuff in there. Two of the things that I think are problematic in some ways are that for some reason the author likes to write in second person a fair bit where the main character is sort of talking directly to the reader. And I would avoid that as much as possible. It's a little bit awkward and it kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit. It makes it feel like we're sort of literally listening to the narrator's thoughts when really we want to be kind of like inside their head while they're experiencing things as opposed to being told about them. So it verges a little bit on being told things rather than shown them when we get to that second person kind of approach. So the other thing that I found, there are actually two more things. So I guess there are three things. The other thing that I found tricky is that the author hops all over the place in terms of chronology. And I think that 
it would be helpful for the sample to have it be a little easier to follow. And we definitely always want to keep that forward momentum going. So even if the character is like thinking back to something, we want to make sure that there's a real eye to the future, especially in this opening sample. Like that doesn't necessarily have to apply to the whole book, but we want someone to be wanting to read what's next. We really want them not to want to put it down. So that forward movement is really, it's hard to achieve when you're jumping around in kind of time. And then the last, the actual last thing is that voice in YA is so tough. I know that authors are probably so sick of hearing this, but it really is, at least for me, it's the number one thing I look for in YA. It doesn't matter whether it's like fantasy or contemporary, anything. It really, there's a certain flavor. It's YA voice that really has to be there, I think, for the book to shine. And the unfortunate thing in this sample is that I feel like we get tastes of that, but the author has sort of styled the writing in a way that makes it feel like a little more archaic or something. And I would have to advise against that. I do that with all of my historical writers and fantasy writers. And I don't know if that's like super frustrating for them, but it definitely is feedback that we get from editors as well that like, you know, even though a story is rooted in the past or rooted in an alternate world that's a little more historical in flavor, it's for a contemporary reader. And so, you know, it's really, really difficult to picture at least for me, being like a 15-year-old who's like, I, I was at a writing event last night and people kept complaining about their kids watching Gamer Bros on YouTube all the time. So it's hard for me to picture, you know, a 15-year-old kid who's going to sit and watch Gamer Bros on Twitch, like, you know, 12 hours a day and then go to bed at night and pick up a book that reads as though, you know, it's written in some like far off historical land. I mean, it's not inconceivable, but I think you're going to sell more copies if it's a voice that they can relate to more easily. And that's not the voice that they're hearing in the majority of their day to day life. So it's asking a lot of them in terms of their suspension of disbelief. And when we want to make things as accessible as possible and draw in readers, it's a tough thing to do. I think it's a little bit easier for more established authors or like for series even. But if this is your very first book, that maybe isn't how you want to position yourself in the market right off the bat. I think especially with like a queer YA fantasy, like you're going to reach a lot more people if you have a voice that's easier for readers to kind of see themselves in. Yeah, you know, YA is tough. I've moved from book club fiction. I've written dystopian fiction. I've now got a fantasy book coming out and I'm now working on a thriller. But the two genres that I will never work in. You is, amaze me, Beyonce. Is, <laughs> I, I make Cece's job difficult. Let's just let's put it out there. But the things that I will never work in, I will never write memoir and I will never write YA for, for these it's reasons. So because hard. it's yeah. really, really tough. But something you said now, you know, there was a study done on the biggest bestsellers of hmm. all time, etc., and the commonalities they found was accessibility of language, using yes. contractions, making the mm -hmm. narrative sound conversational. Yeah, These absolutely. are the things that, that readers very much connect with. So I think that that was excellent advice. Well, I had this conversation on Twitter recently with someone who I really respect who also has a PhD and he pivoted from doing academic writing to doing picture books. And he was saying on Twitter, like, you would think that would be easier. You know, you would think picture books would be way easier than writing peer reviewed academic writing. And I was like, it's not. It just isn't. Like, I mean, you might, it might appear that way on the surface, but when you take a look at it in academic books, we're not expected to make things understandable for people, right? And especially a lot of people experience that in their jobs and things too. Like your emails that you write to your colleagues, or if you're writing like a document for someone, it's not supposed to be widely understandable. You know, you can use jargon, you can use slang, you can use all these things. When you're writing a book that's like meant to be read by thousands of people, and especially children, every single word has to be first 
first of all, meaningful. And it also has to, in order to be meaningful, it has to be accessible, right? And in picture books, there's like three words. <laughs> Sometimes those three words mean a lot when they're the only words in the book. You know, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but like 600 words is not a lot to tell a complete narrative in. And that's usually what you're aiming for with most picture books. So, I mean, that's true in YA too. If you're trying to tell a story to a teenager, tell me how long you could get them to sit there and listen to you. I mean, I feel like as a teenager, if you couldn't get my attention in four minutes, you were pretty much done. I'm sort of like that. And I'm in my 30s now, you know. And so I think that there's a lot of stimulation in the world. It's It can be totally overstimulating. And if your book isn't accessible, it's not, first of all, like some people just straight up won't be able to read it. If you look at the grade levels of literacy in especially the United States, not everybody has access to the education to be able to understand those things. And that's not a bad thing, but you still want them to be able to enjoy your story. And the other thing is that like people read for fun a lot of the time, you know, they're not reading because they want to sit and make their brain work real hard if they're picking up a YA fantasy novel. So, you know, there is space to encourage people's brains to work in ways that they don't always. But I don't think that, you know, the line by line, word by word comprehension should really be that. Yeah, I joke with my husband because he's been working from home the last two years. Mm -hmm. He works in finance. And I joke about bullshit bingo all day long. I, I, have <laughs> Absolutely. A, I have a bingo card and every time they go, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel and let's, yes. not, <laughs> let's not try and boil the ocean and all of the stuff. I'm like, don't I, throw the baby out with the bath. Right, right. So let's I put just, this like, in the parking lot for Let's for park the it here and then I like yeah. <laughs> eventually scream bingo because I have five in a line. But yeah, um, yeah that, that's not what you want your writing oh. to be to be sounding like. So excellent advice there from Emmy on accessibility. Emmy, We've reached our time. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really, oh really gosh, appreciate it. And I hope that we'll have you back in a few months to tackle a few more if you're up for it. I would love that. Anytime. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. 
The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000-word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hey, I'm Jen Loud, and I host the podcast Create Out Loud. And just like the shit no one tells you about writing, I'm all about the nitty gritty, going behind the scenes, pulling back the curtain and saying, how can I help you by talking to all kinds of guests, people that are famous like Annie Lamont and Sue Monk Kid that you know, and people you've never heard of about how do we actually thrive in this thing called the creative life. I mean, morning pages are great, but let's talk about paying the bills and let's talk about what to do when we hate our work and all those other things. I hope you'll tune in. Today's guest, a Penn Faulkner and California Book Award winner, is the author of six novels, two of them New York Times bestsellers, and four short story collections. She has been a Dublin Impact nominee and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2014. She lives in Santa Cruz, California. It's my pleasure to welcome Karen Joy Fowler. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm thrilled to be here. I must say, this is a fangirling moment for me because I have been a huge fan of yours for many, many, many years. Uh, oh, it started. It started with the Jane Austen Book Club, and after that, I was so happy to see the backlist of your titles that I could then go and dive into. But I must be honest, what made me a lifelong fan was We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. That book, oh my goodness, I remember I took that book on vacation. I was sitting on a beach reading it and I was sobbing so violently that my husband came running up from the ocean. He thought we'd got a phone call with terrible news <laughs> because that book just slayed me. And it's the reason why I now support a whole bunch of orangutan and chimpanzee sanctuaries, etc. So thank oh, you for you that. Couldn't say anything that would please me more than that. That is wonderful to hear. That's really the book of my heart in many ways. Very much so. And and before we discuss Booth, I actually wanted to pick your brain about something when it came to we are all completely beside ourselves, because I never read flap copy. I always find it, it gets in the way of my experience of a novel. I prefer to just dive in. And so that's how I accessed we are all completely beside ourselves. And then I remember recommending it to everyone I knew and 
talking about this major twist that they would not see coming. And then someone said to me, but it's there in, in the flap copy. And I looked at the flap copy and I was like, what the hell? And even the way you wrote that book was that for the first quarter of the novel, we should not see this twist coming. You were very intentional in how you wrote that. And then there it was in the flap copy. And I was so happy to see that Barbara Kingsolver was as incensed about it as I was in her review in the New York Times. Now, without giving our listeners spoilers, because I want all of our listeners to go back and get that book, could you speak a bit about that in terms of how we as writers craft something in a certain way, but then how it's marketed differently? Well, you're absolutely right. I think that that it's very clear when you read the book that I do not intend for you to know a major fact till I do intend for you to know it. And I will admit to being distressed that it's on the cover. And the you know the book is even now being repackaged yet again, and it will be on the back cover again in spite of my continual protests. So I think that my publisher now believes, or at least says to me, that by now they think everybody knows, but that's that's not true. That's not true. So yeah, I really, really wish they would not do that. I've had a number of people tell me that they recommend the book to people, but that they said they tell people to tear the back cover off before and to not read it and then read the book the way I clearly intended you to read it. So I'm glad that you had the reading experience that I imagined. Yes, it was so much more emotional because of it. It just packed such a punch. And, you know, the mastery that is required to tell a story in that way, whereby you have the reader thinking one thing and then there's the sucker punch moment where everything they thought they knew has been ripped out from under them. It's so incredibly difficult to write that that kind of story. And I think that's why I was so angry about it, particularly. And, you know, I've published with Putnam as well. And when my first novel came out with them, I know that, you know, I looked at the flap copy and, and there were some potential spoilers there as well. And, you know, I had to advocate very strongly for them to remove that because I felt so strongly about it. And this is something for our listeners to keep in mind in their journey that, you know, sometimes the art of writing a book is very different to the business side of selling and marketing a book. Yeah, I think, you know, clearly from Putnam's point of view, I had handed them a great difficulty, which was that they were to try to sell a book that they could not tell people anything about. So I am sympathetic to the box I put them in. I had somebody at an event once, a, a young reader, raise their hand and say, you know, why did you try so hard to keep it a secret only to put it on the back cover? Oh, well, good question. These things are out of our hands. And, you know, publishers are getting creative with this kind of thing because there was that book that came out also quite a few years ago called Little B. And in that, I think even on the flap copy, the publishers talk about, please don't tell your friends about the surprise ending. And right. I've never seen that on flap copy before. And I feel like that was also, you know, kind of inspired by what Barbara Kingsolver said about yours. So for our listeners, get that book. Get this book that we're discussing today as well. Booth is also phenomenal. Get both books. Don't read the flap copy and you will have a wonderful, wonderful experience of it. So for our listeners, Booth is an epic and intimate novel about the family behind one of the most infamous figures in American history, John Wilkes Booth. Now, I love what you said, Karen, in your letter to the reader 
about you not wanting to center him in the novel. Something that drives me crazy all the time is every time there's some atrocity, a school shooting, the person who commits this atrocity becomes famous. And I feel like this is why so many of these people do it. Even recently, the Michigan high school shooter, whose name I will not say, was asking about their fan mail you know, while in prison. This, this is what's important to them. So can you talk a bit about that, writing a novel about a family who would not be famous except for the thing that this one family member did and how not to center that kind of person in the narrative? You know, it was, I think of it as a sort of Zen koan that I really did not want to write a book about John Wilkes Booth. I really wanted to write about his brothers and sisters and what it was like to be the brother and sister of John Wilkes Booth. But, you know, I also was well aware that I would not be writing about his brothers and sisters if there hadn't been an assassin in the nest. So, like I said, it was a, a sort of contradiction that I dealt with on every page that I trying to keep John Wilkes Booth from dominating the narrative in a way that I knew I could not entirely prevent. I, th I do think that for the readers, there's a different charge when you get to pages where John Wilkes Booth appears as opposed to pages where he's not part of the conversation. So, you know, just as a general sort of philosophical rule, I like to think that people who don't murder presidents are just as interesting as people who do. And I thought this was a very interesting family. I mean, there it's an incredible family. But I also knew that the title booth would probably give a lot of people the impression that they, a lot of Americans at least, that they were picking up a book that would be about John Wilkes Booth. And I didn't know how disappointed they might be to discuss otherwise. You know, when I saw the title, when the publisher pitched it to me for the podcast, you know, that's what I thought it was going to be. And what a joy to see that wasn't the case. And I sometimes feel like readers need to be challenged in this way. Sometimes they come to a book expecting something and discover something even better. Yeah. Nobody's here to please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not a writer's so. job. But even the way you build things up, because we look at the younger brother, it's Edwin, I think it is, who yes. has, what happens? Tell us a bit about what happens on the night that he's born. Well, he was born under a tremendous meteor shower. I read newspaper accounts. So I now won't have the figures in my head, but how many falling stars there were, how many meteor showers. It was considered a birth with a you know great import, a baby with a destiny. He was also born with a cowl, which was also considered to be prophetic in some ways. And I think and I, I'm just voicing my own suspicions here. When John Wilkes Booth was born, his mother told a story about asking what his destiny would be and that she was sitting in front of a fire and the fire behaved in odd ways and she interpreted to, to mean that he also had a wonderful destiny. And my own suspicion, because everybody saw the meteor showers for Edwin's birth and only the mother saw the fire behaving in this peculiar way, is that she was trying to level the playing field. She was trying to give John a sense of destiny just because Edwin had one and that um, she succeeded, that he did. He was persuaded that he was a man of destiny and that the consequences were horrific. Yeah. And, you know, there's a part that you put in the book where I think it's Asia. I don't think it's Rosalie. It's Asia who says how disappointing that her mother didn't even think to ask about her destiny. 
Yes. Um, the way the boys' destinies were, were questioned, you know? Yes. Well, one thing that was very, very clear for everybody in the family, including the girls themselves, was that everybody agreed that the boys were the important members of the family and the girls were just kind of also rands. Even though, you know, Asia did have her own ambitions and she wrote and published three books, even though the third one was published decades after her death. Two of them came out while she was still alive. She I think that she was probably the smartest of the booths, and she was certainly the best educated of the booths. And, you know, she made her own contribution all the while sort of insisting that she wasn't an important person. And her books were about her brothers and her father. So um, it was a, a kind of mixed way to uh, accomplish something in her own name was to write about the important people in the family. Yeah, and she was a little holy terror as a as a she child. It's a word. <laughs> but, yes, but, she was, and you know she did not really soften much as she grew up either. That probably stood her in good stead later. You know, fighting for her own voice. If I think if she was more Rosalie, we wouldn't have heard that voice. So perhaps that's a good thing. All right, so let's talk about the prologue. Is it a prologue? Is it a first chapter? We discuss on the podcast all the time prologues and whether they work or not. And can you discuss the passive voice that you use in that? So I just want to, for our listeners, I'm just going to read one paragraph from that. Improvements are made. Orchards of peach, apple and pear are planted. Fields of corn, cane, sorghum, barley and oats, a kitchen garden of radishes, beets and onions. A cherry tree sprig is set near the front door and carefully tended. And so it goes. So it's a lot of passive voice in that. And again, it's something we tell people to stay away from, right in active voice, except when you are using the passive voice very, very deliberately. So can you speak a bit to us about your use of it there? I wanted the prologue to be kind of disembodied. And I do think it's a prologue. If boats are being taken, I am very pro-prologue. I, I like prologues a lot. I think, you know, too, when you're talking about the work on the farm, you know, the farm is run mostly in Junius, the father's absence, because he's a famous actor and he's off touring. And the people who are actually doing the work are enslaved people. And they are not, the Booth's family had a complicated relationship with slavery. They were not slave owners and they were very opposed to slavery. And they paid a wage to the enslaved people who worked on the farm, but they paid part of that wage to the owners of the enslaved people and only part of it to the people actually doing the work. So in the prologue, when I am talking about work being done, you know, I don't want to say that the family is doing this work because they're not. This sort of group of people who are doing the work are people whose names I do not know, with the exception of the Hall family. Joe Hall ran the farm, was the farm manager, and he was a freed black man. And his wife, Ann Hall, was the housekeeper for the booths for much of the time. And eventually, her husband was able to buy her freedom. But for much of the book, she is also enslaved. So I do have the one family that I know a fair bit about, but the others I do not. Yeah. And, you know, for our listeners, remember that active voice focuses on subject, verb, object, who does what, whereas the passive voice is the other way around. It focuses on what is being done. And then sometimes we have the by whom, and sometimes it gets left out. And what works so well here with what Karen's done is 
all of this industry is focused on. And it almost seems as if it's magically happening by itself, but it's all being done by these people whose history has been erased, whose, you know, identity has been erased, whose rights have been taken from them. So it's, it's incredibly powerful in that prologue. So straight after that, we have almost, it's almost like vignettes about Abraham Lincoln. These are interspersed throughout things that are happening in Abraham Lincoln's life. And these are interspersed throughout the booth sections. Can you speak a bit about that as well? Was that something that you intended structurally from the beginning? Or was that something that came afterwards? Now, that was a very late addition and actually was a suggestion that my agent made that I thought was an excellent suggestion. The The way I hope they work in the book is as a sort of ticking clock that you know these lives are going to converge by the end of the book. And so to know what Lincoln was doing at the same time periods as I'm covering in the Booth family, I hope gives the reader a sense of looming convergence, that although they're in very different different places doing very different things. They're headed towards the same end point. Yeah, you know, in a novel where it isn't historical fiction and we don't know what's going to happen, we would take that as a sense of foreshadowing. But we do know what's going to happen. And this is something that really helps heighten the tension because it's like these two kind of speeding trains that are on different tracks and at some point, you know, are going to collide. But it really adds huge tension to the piece to know what these separate actors are doing on these separate days. So I really, really love that. Can we talk about the point of view? Because I know that in the Jane Austen Book Club, you used a sort of a combination of a collective sort of first person. So instead of I, it was a lot of we, you know, speaking on behalf of the group and then third person. And we are completely beside ourselves. That was first person. I used to think it was fairly simple in terms of point of view. You know, you have first person, you have second person, you have third person, and you have this omniscient. And when I started reading this, I thought, okay, was third person close? But we definitely have this omniscience. But in so many omniscient point of view novels, you know, the omniscient voice is so godlike and it's constantly interjecting and it knows everything. But what you do here, which I loved, is it's like a third person close and then it kind of pulls out. It's like a camera that was zoomed in and then it kind of zooms out. And then we get a bit more in terms of this omniscient voice, but it's a very objective kind of voice. You know, it's a voice that isn't sort of taking sides. Could, could you tell us about your approach to that kind of point of view? The omniscient voice is one that I really love and that I have used a lot of times. And, I, you know, I love I love it for the reasons that you've said, that it, it allows me to move beyond what the characters know and experience in order to give a larger context to the story that I'm telling. It seems to me that most novels with an omniscient point of view, and my novel here at least is certainly no exception, still take place most in a close third or possibly uh, a, a first, but um, I, I think it would be more unusual to combine the omniscient with a first person point of view so that you you slip in to a close third and much of the novel takes place in that point of view, depending on which point of view character I am. It could be Rosalie, it could be Edwin, or it could be Asia. So the omniscient point of view is is intermittent. 
can you do? You come out of the closed third in order to provide um, some sort of larger perspective. Or uh, And one of the things that, that I liked in the use in this novel of the point of view is far from being a godlike and all-knowing figure, it also allows me to say what I don't know. You know, that, you know, that there's a, an account in the book of the death of a Confederate soldier. He's a friend of the booths and he's in a, a prison and he's shot by one of the guards. And when I went to research this death, I found two very different stories depending on, you know, what your politics were. We are certainly familiar enough with the way our perspective, our political perspective can change our sense of what actually has occurred. And in this case, the, you know, there are two stories. One is that he was taunting the guard and telling the guard that he didn't have the courage to take a shot. And so the guard shot him. And the other one is that he was innocently reading the Bible. In fact, reading his mother's favorite passage when the guard completely unprovoked shot and killed him. So the omniscient point of view allows me to give you both of those stories and just to say, you know, accounts of his death vary. And to be clear that I'm certainly suspicious of the mother's favorite passage in the Bible story, but I don't know what happened. Sounds a bit like propaganda. But, you know, for our listeners, we often say be very careful with omniscient because it's one of those things that in the hands of a master is done phenomenally, phenomenally well. The biggest thing with omniscient voice is that it requires restraint because you don't want to constantly be interjecting with all of these things that the narrator knows that the characters don't know because otherwise the narrator becomes such a pain in the ass that you just want them to get the hell out of the story. And so, you know, here is the thing is restraint. So for those of you working on Omniscient, read Booth and really you will highlight the instances where Karen puts in that Omniscient voice and you will see the restraint that is required to make it work incredibly well. We're almost at the end of our time, Karen. So one question I want to ask to leave our listeners with is, you know, you said in your letter to the reader, how after Trump was elected president, you just you couldn't work on this book for a year because it just it felt like what was the point of working on this and you know writing about something that wasn't related to that and and then you did find the convergence and you realized how much it was related to that. There were actually quotes that you've used from Lincoln that were chilling, especially in terms of mobs, etc. But something that I want to leave our listeners with because now I mean we've we've got the war going on with Ukraine. We've just come out of COVID. It is such a difficult time to be creative, to to sit down and work creatively. What advice do you have for our listeners at such a difficult time? It is a difficult time, and I'm not sure that I'm the best person to give advice because, as I said, you know, I, I get quite waylaid by feelings of despair and futility. But there is, you know, there is certainly a pleasure in creating a world that you can live in while you're writing the book. I don't want to make it sound like I think writing a book is in itself an escapist activity, but that you can highlight the parts of the world that do appeal to you and that do give you hope and comfort. And you can also look as clearly as you're able to at the parts of the world that don't. I think that stories are very, very fundamentally something that humans need and that, you know, they can certainly be used for good or for ill, as we've seen on many occasions. But you are going to be using your story for good. So people want it. 
And the great thing there as well is that, you know, story is something you can control. When the rest of the world is completely beyond your control, what happens within this imaginary world is completely within your control. And that sometimes gives me some comfort as well. Karen, such a joy chatting to you. Thank you so much for taking well, the time. thank you. And thank you. I've enjoyed it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. 
And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.